It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Dom Nichols, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from the battlefront, hear more live from the UN, and analyse what's happening in Nagorno-Karabakh. Plus, David speaks to Joe Webster of the Atlantic Council about how China is helping Russia's war effort by sending ball bearings. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 20th of September, one year and 208 days since the start of the full-scale invasion. And today, I'm joined by Assistant Comment Editor Francis Durnley from the UN General Assembly in New York and Foreign Correspondent James Kilner. I started by giving the latest updates from the front lines. So in the last hour, there have been reports, unverified, but I've seen from a couple of sources that have been reliable in the past, but it is breaking news. Last hour... Heavy explosions reported in Crimea, thought to be near the Belbek military airbase, which is just to the north of Sevastopol. Now, there are reports that the Russian occupation authorities there have said that a number of drones were intercepted and that the images that are purported to go with this news is just grass burning. Doesn't seem exactly likely. We think the Kirsch Bridge has been closed and the smoke screen that they've been using around the Kirsch Bridge in the last few weeks has been deployed separately but probably connected if this is all if this is all correct there we think there's maybe a missile attack or some other kind of attack on a base just to the again just outside Sevastopol just to the northeast just slightly to the east of the Belbek air base which we think has targeted buildings belonging to the to Russia's Black Sea fleet headquarters so that's breaking at the moment i can say no more because i can't verify that but like i say it's come i've seen it on a couple of sources that have proved reliable in the past but we'll obviously get more of that i'll keep an eye out in the next hour but probably more tomorrow elsewhere though in ukraine just a couple of quick updates because i want to get on to onto the meat of today with the with the boys ukraine's armed forces said earlier today that they had destroyed 17 out of 24 russian shahid 131 and 136 drones that were used in attacks overnight although an oil refinery in the central Poltava region was hit. So this is about 200 k's southeast of Kiev. This is according to the regional governor, Dmitry Lunin. Posting on Telegram, he said, Tonight the Russians repeatedly attacked Poltava region. Our anti-aircraft defence worked well against enemy anti-aircraft missiles. Although that doesn't that obviously describe the extent of any damage to the refinery. So you know, we'll keep an eye on that as well. Separately, but similarly, uh, it looks like Ukraine struck a fuel depot in a probable drone attack near the airport of Russia's Black Sea resort of Sochi. So images on social media from the scene show huge tanks, great fuel tanks on fire, big columns of smoke rising above the city. And witnesses said that before the fire broke out, explosions were heard. That's important because these things have gone up in smoke before because of poor handling and what have you. But if you hear explosions beforehand, then it is 
almost likely and almost certainly an attack. No reports of casualties from either of those. Uh, and just finally, so yesterday's Ramstein meeting, the 15th meeting of the Ramstein contact group, the, the military support for Ukraine, if you like, hosted well, started and hosted today or yesterday by uh, U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. He's he said that the, that the supporters need to dig deep and provide more air defense systems, he said, in order to help Ukraine block the increasing barrages of Russian missiles. There's an ongoing debate, as we know, as we've talked about in Congress. And whilst allies have said they they're going to discuss how best to help Ukraine's counteroffensive over the winter months, they don't appear really any closer to any commitments on long-range missiles that um, that Kiev have been calling for. So Mr Austin said, air defence is saving lives. I urge allies and partners to dig deep and donate whatever air defence munitions they can as Ukraine, Ukraine heads into another winter of war. Now, he said that the allies have done a credible job of getting some air defences to the war, but there's much, much more work to be done. And that's the message that we conveyed to our colleagues earlier today, as in yesterday at the Ramstein contact meeting. He said, I have every belief that they will go back and dig a bit deeper. So clear message there. You may remember when I interviewed John Kirby, National Security Council spokesman last week, I said that the, the US have basically spent about 5% of their defence budget in their support for Ukraine, which is you know, a huge amount of money, not a, not a, an enormous amount of investment for the, for the US in their annual budget, um, that that metric five percent ish of your defence budget is a is about the same as what you UK has done. Um, I think Estonia per capita by GDP is is currently sort of leading the pack with slightly more than that. But I asked Mr Kirby if that five percent of your defence expenditure to spend on military of Ukraine is that the sort of level you'd look for allies to um to meet and of course he didn't he didn't put a figure on it he wouldn't he wouldn't sort of agree with that but he he was all the body language and the communication was that that's not a ridiculous figure and that some should be doing a bit more so here we go this constant this, this sort of diplomatic pressure gentle nudging amongst friends if you like to dig a bit deeper seems to be carrying on but anyway that's all for me I'd like to go and speak to um to folks who know a lot more about these things than I do, Francis, you're still in. You're still in New York. You were at the uh, UN General Assembly yesterday. We saw your your live live blogging, live tweeting, and uh, we'd be fascinated to get a view from you what it's like in the room, the atmospherics, how these things are built, what you saw, who you were chatting to. Sure. Well, thanks, Don. When I called into the podcast yesterday, I just found my spot in the press gallery in the main chamber of the General Assembly, awaiting the speeches to start. Each country's representative speaking that day had about 15 minutes to address the delegates in the room, of which there were, of course, hundreds spread out on designated tables for the 193 countries represented at the UN. I heard Biden, Zelensky, Erdogan of Turkey, Duda of Poland, uh, a litany of, of, of very significant names, all speaking within about a three, four hour period. And as I alluded to yesterday, at, at the UN, the, the individual is really dwarfed by the scale of the modernist buildings that make up the vast complex. E- even in the main hall, presidents and prime ministers are turned into miniatures. And it, it was a fellow journalist, uh, shout out to Alex, who's a loyal listener to the podcast, who, who actually pointed out Olaf Scholz, who was swarmed by officials. Nobody is obviously who they are in this chamber. And that was one of the most striking features about it. Not even Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General, could command the room when he made the opening remarks. Delegates continued to mutter to each other throughout his speech. And as I say, it's only by actually being there that one realises how the space has a life far beyond the speaker on the main stage. It's rather like how the actors at Shakespeare's Globe had to compete with the chattering and clattering of its audience. There were few good speakers to match a room that seemed built for orators. And I, I couldn't help but wonder you know, all the world's a stage, but where are the big players? President Biden didn't really ignite the room. It was only the president of Brazil in the first couple of hours who managed to trigger some emotion from the chamber, receiving loud applause for his attack on the legitimacy of the UN Security Council following the actions of some of its 
permanent members. And indeed, that was one of the key themes that emerged listening to the speeches. President Erdogan did the same, arguing that the world is much bigger than five, alluding again to the permanent members of the Security Council. So one wonders, Don, whether your interview with White House spokesman Kirby, who of course suggested that the US is actively looking into the idea of expanding the membership of the Security Council, was noted by those countries, or perhaps that was indicative, what he said to you, of conversations already taking place. But clearly, they, those countries, and there were others too, were keen to drum home those critiques of the makeup of the Security Council. And one couldn't leave the chamber without wondering whether reform is indeed on the cards. Now, Zelensky's speech was easily the most eagerly awaited. He used his address to warn against shady dealings, his term to end the Russian war against Ukraine. This was his, of course, first in-person appearance at the UN since the full-scale invasion. And he invited delegates who don't tolerate any aggression to join a peace summit before emphasising, and I'll quote, I'm aware of the attempts to make some shady dealings behind the scenes. Evil cannot be tolerated and trusted. Just ask Prigozhin. So, of course, what he means by that is that any deal struck with or, or made with, with Putin would be very easily ripped up within uh, a matter of days, weeks, months, years, and thereby the only guarantee of security is a victory for Ukraine. He says, look, for the first time in modern history, we have a real chance to end the aggression on the terms of the nation which was attacked. He also spoke about the issue of children very passionately. And I couldn't help but think it was ironic that a country whose president would have spoken to only a, an empty chamber, really, only a handful of years ago, very few leaders are treated with the audience here that they think they deserve, was not only the General Assembly's most anticipated speaker, even Trump, President Biden in his own country, despite Biden making reference to Ukraine, but he was also the most passionate articulator, really, of the, of the values the UN purports to defend. And whilst presidents quite often speak to rows of empty chairs, that wasn't true in Zelensky's case. There is that still star quality very much in evidence. And I imagine it will be the same for his address today to the UN Security Council, where, which is set to be a feisty one, as he will be face to face with Russian officials for the first time since his country was invaded. I imagine it will be quite dramatic. Lavrov arrived in New York yesterday with official media saying that he flew a circuitous route to avoid European airspace. Read that into that what you will. And I think, again, it was it will be revealing as to what the mood in the chamber is with regard to Ukraine at the moment and the emphasis put on it. Of course, not all countries in the permanent, uh, uh, who are permanent members of the UN, of the UN Security Council are necessarily uh, <laughs> extremely supportive of Ukraine's plight. There was one other thing I did get a sense of yesterday, which is in Zelensky's speech, as passionate as it was, I think he was acutely aware that Ukraine is only one of 193 countries in the chamber and that as important as he feels the issue is, there is also a necessity to appeal to other issues that are relevant to those countries. Ukraine cannot rely on being the only issue talked about at such affairs. And indeed, the events in Azerbaijan that perhaps we'll come to spoke to that and there was a lot of concern around that issue. And so I think this is something that Ukraine is increasingly going to have to grapple with in the months ahead, which is that there are other issues rearing their head. The world is starting to adjust in part to what is taking place in Ukraine. It's no longer as shocking as it once was, and it has become part of the everyday fabric and reality of these diplomatic summits. And that is a challenge because you are competing for time and you're competing with time with important people at these kind of events. Now, just one final thing about actually being here. One can see the body language between diplomats far more clearly than on television. And there's an informality about the whole affair. 
rather curiously as if the stakes are somehow lower here than the politicians find in their own countries. Something that's no doubt true for the majority of speakers, though that certainly won't be true for Zelensky. Leaders, delegates let their hair down in the cafe downstairs. I saw the prime minister of one small European country feasting on a Mars bar. And I shared a lift with one of the world's most important defence officials, apparently without bodyguards. There's even a gift shop. You feel you could talk to anyone, which I suppose is the point. But it's a democracy of sorts, but only for the anointed. And I found it a very curious space to be in. And it will be very interesting, as I say, to register similar feelings, atmospheres in the UN Secretary uh, Security Council later today. Thanks, Francis. Lovely detail about the Mars bar, my uh, uh, confectionery of choice. Before we move to the the important news from Nagorno-Karabakh and speak to James, I would be keen, Francis, to hear from you. You've been around politics, I mean, really close inside politics, much more than I have. You've worked with parliamentarians. And you know that to get political change, it it doesn't just happen. It it needs it needs a broad consensus that that this idea, this thing, needs to happen. You need a window of opportunity, and you need a champion to to push it through. And it takes great you know, personal and political effort to do that. So, I mean, are you witnessing those things there? This discussion about reform for the UN Security Council, either making it bigger or challenging the idea of the veto or, or any of that, but shaking the snow dome about it. Do you, uh, of those three, the three sort of legs of that stall for political change, how do you rate this moment and uh, in, in particular for UN Security Council reform? I think this is a very significant moment. If you think about the shocks of the events of last year, it was too quick after the event to really see and critique the UN, I think, from the perspective of insiders. Whereas now, it's obviously we've had a year since the last meeting. And I think there is more of a sense of the failures or the errors that have been made that reached the the point that we're at. And so I think as a consequence of that, uh, there are now conversations that would have been deemed unspeakable a year or more ago that are now, as I say, openly being discussed in the main chamber. So again, I allude to the this talk about the makeup of the UN Security Council. That would have been considered a no-go area. And the fact that these countries' leaders feel willing to speak about that is very, very important publicly, because no doubt this has been a conversation going on behind closed doors for a very long time. But publicly, it's a very different thing, because it effectively means that you've been given the green light to talk about it. And in doing so, that means you know that you're not at risk of upsetting too much people who you can't afford to upset in those conversations. So I think it's indicative, Dom, of the the fact that these conversations are taking place. But I would emphasise to your question that a lot of these the, the really important conversations are taking place behind the scenes. You know, these are, there are numerous spill out areas, rooms that are off the chamber. And this is where countries, important officials will be meeting. And that's where the real business is done. And I think as we've, as we've talked about in the podcast in the past, there are a lot of critiques made of the UN as an institution and, and arguably rightly so. And these conversations about countries being removed, say, from the UN Security Council, or maybe even removed from the UN entirely. Now, there's merit in both of those arguments. But from the UN's perspective, what one can see is that at the very least, you have the guarantee that these people, these delegates, these important leaders are in the room and able to be confronted. And so, you you know, also the the world's media there and are able to ask quite challenging and difficult questions to important officials. And so, as I said before, it's as if the the medium is the message, regardless of what detail and what actual practical change is achieved at the UN. There is a sense that at the very least, they are having to conform to certain protocols of behaviour, which can be very significant for eliciting I suppose, democratic processes around conversation and building consensus. But that's not to say, of course, that it has been successful. And thereby, that is why I think we are starting to see some very important conversations around reform. But the exact form that those would take is unclear. But as I say, I would stress the fact that this is now being discussed publicly 
is the cha- is the game changer. And I think we will we can expect there to be some very interesting conversations taking place in the coming months. Sure can. Now, before uh, before we let you go, you've been chatting, I understand, to Hikmat Haziev, the foreign policy advisor to the president of Azerbaijan. What have you? What can you tell us there? And then we'll go to to James to get the the full int. Yes, well, I won't try and cover all of the complexities of this story because he's very much uh, James's beat. But yes, I did speak to him yesterday and it was an interesting conversation. He gave me sort of 20, 25 minutes, which is a very, very long time for somebody who's fielding questions from the world's press. Obviously, very much Azerbaijan is in the news yesterday. I put it to him what he would say to those countries who feel that this is an invasion of territory that is contested uh, in the same way that Russia invaded what it viewed to be contested territory in Ukraine. We obviously know that that was not the case, that the uh, that this was not contested territory as far as international law was concerned. This was Ukrainian territory. But nonetheless, this is what some countries say. And uh, he was very keen to emphasize that this was uh, territory that has been internationally recognized as Azerbaijan, um, and that even the head of Armenia has said uh, that if certain guarantees are given, that this would be territory they would see recognised as Azerbaijan. So he was keen to emphasise that. He was also keen to stress that when I put it to him what he, about references to ethnic cleansing taking place, that this is not their objective in any shape or form. He said that this was simply designed to stop the firing of uh, missiles and other hostile weapons uh, into Azerbaijani territory, that this was more of a defensive measure. Uh, but he did admit, and I put it to him very strongly, that this is a very major act to to be involved with and that civilians will die. And he said, yes, there will be collateral damage as a result of what they're doing. And they are aware of that. But they said that they were trying to behave in a way that conformed to very strict protocols. So it was interesting to see. I mean, in a way, I felt that the the very, the significance of it wasn't exactly what he said, but it was the fact that he wanted to speak to me and other journalists. I think they're very acutely aware that they don't want to be charged with being, behaving in a way that breaks the rules of international law. And so they're very much trying to emphasise that they are not doing that and essentially justify their behaviour. There's a lot at stake for Azerbaijan at the moment, and I know that James will be able to speak to that. And so whilst the detail was interesting and hoping to put up an article about it later, what was really significant was the the fact that we were having the conversation at all. And one could say that that really summarises the utility of the UN itself. It's about the fact that you're having the conversation, whereas you may disagree on the details. Fascinating. Talk about disagreeing on the details. I had a brief chat with James before we came on air about the title of today. So I named it Live of the UN as Sevastopol's hit again. And James said, oh, surely the um, the, the news of the Kremlin win from Nagorno-Karabakh is a bigger story. And I said, well, I, I didn't I haven't seen it. like that. I haven't seen it characterised like that. I, I'm not I'm not aware of that. So, James, delighted to have you back with us today. Can you bring us up to speed with what is going on in Nagorno-Karabakh? What's at stake and why why you do characterise it there as a potential Kremlin win? Hi, Dom. Yeah. Well, uh, of course, I'm just the super sub, so I defer to you and your judgment on the title, 100%. The, the news around nagorno Karabakh and the um, Azerbaijani attack yesterday, which started yesterday on ethnic Armenian forces, uh, we still control part of this contested region between Armenia and Azerbaijan, mountainous contested region, etc. Is, is, is really important for people interested in the war in Ukraine and interested, interested in, in what's going on in the Kremlin to to look at and, and consider in, in, in its fullest. In in brief, the news is that after months of, of pressure, after months of build-up, of military build-up, political pressure, etc., Azerbaijan launched what seemed to be a, a very well-planned attack on a much smaller, much less uh, well-prepared ethnic Armenian defence force in the small part of Nagorno-Karabakh that uh, it, it had, still doesn't control. As listeners will probably remember, in 2020, there was a war between Azerbaijan and Armenian forces over Nagorno-Karabakh, and Azerbaijan pretty much kicked out uh, Armenia out, um, out of most of the territory. The Kremlin did jump in, in that conflict after five weeks and impose a peace deal, which, which still gave Armenia some control over the main town, 
Sapanakart and some surrounding villages, about 120,000 ethnic Armenians there. So the important thing is, is here, Azerbaijan launched its attack in a very dominant position and basically crushed, it seems, uh, wars left of the Armenian defense forces. Now, as Francis rightly pointed out, as um, Nagorno-Karabakh, which is roughly the size of somewhere like Somerset, um, is uh, internationally recognized as part of Azerbaijan. This is part of the Soviet style of planning, divide and, divide and rule, etc., where they carved up bits of territory and, and gave parcels to, 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 to neighboring countries, etc., to keep the tension going. So although it's internationally um, recognized as Azerbaijani, Nagorno-Karabakh was... Uh, massively predominantly populated by ethnic Armenians and has been for generations after generations, etc. There were various wars after the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991, which ethnic Armenians basically won and defeated an Azerbaijani army and solidified their control over this region called Nagorno Karabakh. Now, rewind back to today. There's been a, the, the news from today is that they had, the, after standing aside, the Russian peacekeepers who had been ordered into the region after the 2020 war did finally step in after 24 hours of this current conflict and impose or help negotiate a uh, peace deal between Azerbaijani army and the ethnic Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh. And none of the terms of the peace deal, the ethnic Armenians will have to disarm fully disband their army, that sort of thing, and basically submit to full Azerbaijani rule. Now, the nature of the, the combat in Nagorno-Karabakh since 1991 has been terrible ethnic cleansing from both sides, war crimes, purges, etc. And it's very likely that many of the 120,000 ethnic communities will actually end up leaving the area and move back to the, the Armenian mainland. And thereby, to some extent, completing a lifelong ambition held by Azerbaijani President Ilham Aliyev, who wants to see all the ethnic Armenians kicked out, etc. Now, when I was talking to Dom before this podcast, and I was talking about this being a Kremlin win, this takes a bit of unpicking, but again, listeners of the regular listeners podcast will be familiar with me coming on to this, this, this show and talking to them about Armenia and how it is beginning to break away from the Kremlin orbit. In 2020, it was the Kremlin which eventually stepped in to defend Armenian, to some extent, sovereignty over parts of Nagorno-Karabakh from Azerbaijan. It's a five-week step in. They did step in in the end. Uh, the Kremlin also keeps one of its big overseas bases in Armenia, about 2,000 soldiers outside the second city of, of Gyumri, this sort of thing. And the Kremlin has generally been a traditional ally of uh, Armenia. Now, the problem is this year... Armenia, led by um, Nikol Pashinyan, a revolutionary leader, he, he won power in 2018 in a peaceful revolution in Armenia, has been increasingly and very vocally um, opposing standing up to the Kremlin. He said that the Kremlin has failed to protect its sovereign, uh, Armenian sovereignty properly from increasing sort of skirmishes by Azerbaijani forces. He's pulled out of joint exercises. He's the Armenian Parliament's threatened to become part of the International Criminal Court, which, which we'll remember has an arrest warrant out for Vladimir Putin. Only last week or 10 days ten days ago, he sent his wife to, this is Nikol Pashinyan, the Armenian Premier, sent his wife to Kiev on a humanitarian aid mission. And he then gave an interview a few days later to um Italian newspaper, excuse me, saying that... Um, the Kremlin, the Kremlin is out to punish Armenia because it hadn't backed uh, the Kremlin's war in Ukraine strongly enough, and that he was determined to realign Armenian diplomacy more closely with the West. As we know, Vladimir Putin takes this sort of thing very personally. He hates former Soviet states trying to move away from his and the Kremlin's influence, and. It seems to myself and to various analysts I've spoken to that there may have been certain support from the Kremlin around the timing and the impact and the outcome of this Azerbaijani attack on ethnic Armenian forces left in Nagorno-Karabakh. Certainly, one of the telegrams that we think is linked strongly to Russian security forces has been one has been briefing one of the most heavily 
and what's been going on inside uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin uh, press secretary, has even made a statement saying that what Azerbaijani uh, forces have been doing is perfectly legitimate, etc., etc. Russian uh, peacekeepers stood aside while Azerbaijan imposed its will on uh, ethnic Armenian forces in Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, now, we have protests going on in Yerevan, calling for Nikol Pashinyan's uh, resignation. He is looking very, very shaky. His popularity is completely nosedive, and he may not survive. Let's see. Essentially, what this is increasingly looking like, to some degree anyway, of course there is the Azerbaijani territorial win, and of course there's a humanitarian crisis, which is now going to have to deal with. But it's also looking like, possibly... A Kremlin warning to other former Soviet states which may be considering aligning themselves more closely with the West and the US. Armenia and Nikol Pashinyan went and did this, or tried to do this very publicly. There are currently American soldiers in Armenia on a, on a military exercise with the Armenian army. This would have been unacceptable to Putin, and it seems like, yet again, the Kremlin has managed to plot and manipulate a comeuppance for what it sees as a vassal state which is stepping out of line. That is fascinating. So let me try and get this straight. So you reckon that the, <clears throat> excuse me, the 2,000, circa 2,000 Russian quote-unquote peacekeepers in the region, they would ordinarily have taken some kind of action to support Armenia? Would that have been... Is that the model we've seen in the past? And you're suggesting that this time they did not. And are there other capabilities, air defence, for example, or intelligence, satellite, God knows what, that Russia could have and has done in the past offered to Armenia that was withheld this time deliberately because of Pashinyan's um, vocal, if not support, then critique of the war? Possibly to some extent. The Armenian position was already very weak. They had ceded so much territory and Azerbaijan had taken control of the only road which links the areas of Nagorno-Karabakh, which is, was still held by ethnic Armenians, to mainland Armenia. And Nikol Pashinyan was already in such a sort of compromised position that he had to say yesterday that the Armenian, the, the National Armenian Army was not involved in any Nagorno-Karabakh uh, fighting, and was not going to get involved. So they, he had to sort of abandon the ethnic Armenians anyway. But the point is, the Kremlin knows how to pressure leaders of former Soviet states with trying to step out of line. And it knows that Nagorno-Karabakh for Armenia is a very, very emotive issue. And Pashinyan had already lost a lot of popularity in 2020. He was blamed for losing the war there. And now with this, with, with, with this second sort of military disaster or sovereignty disaster or, or sort of a disaster to Armenia's pride, it may be too much for, for most ordinary Armenians to, to bear. And, and they will be blaming Shinian again. Now, the issue about the Russian peacekeepers is complicated. They were imposed after 2020 and they are meant to stop attacks, you know, between, between Azerbaijani and ethnic Armenian, ethnic Armenian fighters, etc. But they seem to have intervened on very few occasions. We do know they can intervene. They have the sort of capacity. But, for example, they just overlooked and watched as Azerbaijani first environmental protesters in December last year, and then the Azerbaijani military blocked to this, this sort of very important road between mainland Armenia and Sepanakot. It's fairly inconceivable that... Um, the Kremlin wouldn't have known that Azerbaijan was planning this attack. Azerbaijan says, by the way, that this was an anti-terrorist organ uh, operation, which was triggered by an increasing number of attacks on its civilians and, and, and soldiers in, in the region. But it is very difficult to, to sort of conceive that the Kremlin wouldn't have known about this and wouldn't have been able to pressure Aliyev in any which way it fancied. If it really wanted to stop this, it probably could have done. But it, it looks to many of us that the Kremlin didn't want to stop it and possibly may have wanted to encourage it because they, they Putin and the Kremlin may have realised 
wondered what problems it would pose for Shinya, and he tried to step out of line. This comes 24 hours after Joe Biden met with four of the five Central Asian leaders in New York for a roundtable meeting. There are lots of you know increasingly intense dialogues between the West and Central Asia, former Soviet Central Asia. The Kremlin had expected former Soviet Central Asian states to get fully behind its invasion in Ukraine. It's been disappointed they haven't. So there's two wins here for the Kremlin. It's potentially punished Pashinyan for stepping out of line, and it's sent a very hardcore message to other former Soviet states in Central Asia, etc., to get into line. James, when I was speaking to the Azerbaijanis yesterday, I put it to them about the timing of this and whether that was deliberately timed with the UN Security Council meeting. Just wanted to hear your perspective on that, whether you think it was deliberate or whether you think that this is just something that was boiling up and just boiled over and spilled over at, at the wrong time. I'm, I'm not sure it would have been timed deliberately for the UN meeting i i I'm not, I'm not sure i'm not a un I'm, I'm not sort of plugged into that scene i'm not sure how it would have benefited them to the Azerbaijanis to have it going on while the un was meeting perhaps to be able to explain it to journalists like yourself etc i think it's timings more i think if there is a timing well we we know that azerbaijan favors its military maneuvers operations etc around this time of the year, the 2020 war, war was launched at a similar time. There was a, a, a large sort of scale skirmish attack last summer where about 300 soldiers were killed, roughly the same sort of time. So, you, you, you know, it, it, do, it does have form here. And like I said, it, it comes as Central Asian leaders were meeting Joe Biden. So from the Kremlin's point of view, the, the time is important. And American soldiers are in Armenia having a military exit. So again, the timing could be linked with that. We, well, we have seen like an intolerable amount of pressure building up. And I wrote a story about this last week about Azerbaijani military flights to Israel, um, where, where, where it has a uh, military alliance with Israel. But when, when, when those start happening, that generally means there's an operation being planned by Azerbaijan. We've seen um, Azerbaijani military convoys dubbed with as I call them, war markings, these sort of letter insignias that the Russians used before they invaded Ukraine. So it's clear that something is building up. It's clearly on the Azerbaijani terms. And now we have this Russia-imposed peace deal, which suddenly just snapped into place. It's been an incredibly slick operation, and I think it would probably have been uh, a coordinated plan to some degree. Great. Thanks, James. Need to start wrapping up now. Can I go to you guys for final thoughts? Francis, first, please. Well, sure. Just briefly, Dom, I'm interviewing the president of Malawi later and we'll be discussing the grain deal and other issues. I'm very keen to speak to him because I think the African perspective in all of this, the consequences of the war, the geopolitical shifts taking place at the UN, their role is is pivotal. And actually, that's one of the things that strikes you most about coming to the UN is just how large the African delegate presence is. They're talking to everybody. It's They're key to all of this as one of the key emerging, I suppose, blocks of power within the UN. And so it will be very interesting, that conversation later. I'm also going to be interviewing some UN officials as well, as well as a few journalists. So a busy day here. Just wanted to thank those who put me in touch with Zelensky's team. It doesn't look like I'm going to be able to fit in any time with him this time because his diary is just sort of basically completely back to back with very, very important meetings with officials. He's not doing that many speak conversations with journalists, but I've been having some very interesting conversations offline with his people. So it's been very worthwhile, the contacts that I was put in touch with. So I just wanted to thank people for that. And of course, we will get Zelensky at some point. And then just lastly, because I've got so many messages from listeners, I know I have not yet said who my favourite president is, and I will certainly do so either at the end of this week on the podcast, if I have time, or at the beginning of next week, once I'm back. But I'm going to be visiting a few sites related to them in New York. So perhaps that gives you a bit of a clue. But I have not forgotten, and I will 
give you a full expose uh, with my reasons why in due course. Last week in Washington, David Knowles visited the Atlantic Council, a foreign policy think tank, where he sat down to speak to Joe Webster, senior fellow specialising in China and Russia. It's a fascinating chat about the two countries' relationship and the implications on Western democracy. But personally, I'm most interested in how ball bearings from China are helping Russia's war effort. Here's their conversation. Joe, thank you so much for welcoming us here at the Atlantic Council. Can you just start by telling our listeners who you are and what you work on? Yes, thank you, David. Thanks so much for for being here with me today. It's, It's wonderful to talk with you about these issues. So I'm a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council at our Global Energy Center. Uh, I work on Chinese energy issues as well as offshore wind and hydrogen, or sort of my my main bag when it comes to energy issues. And then parallel to that, I also read a publication called the uh, China-Russia Report. You know, just what I'm seeing in terms of Chinese-Russian trade, as well as the broader political relationship between the two autocracies. Well, let's let's dive straight in, but let's not start in China or Russia. Let's start in Kyrgyzstan. You've found some fascinating new data on imports from China. Can you tell us what you found? Yes, absolutely. So you hear a lot of discussion about cutouts where Chinese exports are not necessarily going directly to Russia, but they're going being shipped through intermediate countries, such as Turkey, such as Central Asia, such as Belarus. And one of the more interesting patterns of trade we see is actually regarding Kyrgyzstan. So Kyrgyzstan is obviously a Central Asian country, has historically close ties with Russia, uh, a lot of Russian speakers there, also borders China as well. And something which I find fascinating is Chinese exports of ball bearings to Kyrgyzstan are up about 2,550% from 2021 levels. And ball bearings are important because they're used to separate two bearing rings, reducing friction, supporting loads. While I'm not an engineer, I do know that they're useful for both rail cars as well as tanks, uh, military tanks. And so this has been, it's, there's possible that there's some sort of reason in Kyrgyzstan's domestic market why you know, ball bearing imports from China are up so dramatically. What's more likely the case, however, is that these imports from China are then just passed on to Russia, and Russia is using these ball bearings to help produce tanks, to help produce rail cars. And in the Russian market, ball bearings have been a key constraint for Russian tank production. So Russia has traditionally imported ball bearings from Western countries. Chinese-made ball bearings are not as high quality as they are from Western countries, but at the same time, they can, to some degree, replace Western ball bearings. And so even though there's not a direct trade necessarily, between, there is direct trade from China to Russia of these ball bearings. But there's also it's also likely the case that Central Asia is also playing a role in helping to facilitate Sino-Russian trade and specifically Chinese exports to, to Russia indirectly. What do you think that shows us about relations between China and Russia? I think it's for us in the West, it's often quite difficult to understand how the two regimes relate to each other and the degree of support to, towards Russia and its invasion of Ukraine from China. Could you sort of expand on that? Yes, absolutely. So you're not alone in, in it. It's very difficult to understand both these regimes and their relationship with each other because these are two autocracies. They're not very transparent. And that's that's the case here as well. So we see, it, it does seem, however, that China is very sensitive to how it is perceived in, in Europe, in part because Europe is such an important economic as well as technological partner for China. And so China has been throughout Beijing, the the Chinese government has been supporting the Russian invasion in various ways. There's been informational support. There's also been economic support, one could argue, from even before the conflict started itself to the present day. And but also China is also mindful. The Chinese government is also mindful of its presence in Europe, how it is perceived in Europe. And so they're attempting in some ways to in order, they're, they're attempting in some ways to manage the optics of this trade with, with Russia. So that's why you don't see, you do see a lot of substantial direct trade between China and Russia, but you also see a lot of indirect trade. So for instance, Chinese exports to Russia are, are likely to breach $200 billion this year. Year-to-date Chinese exports to Russia are up 77% from 2021 levels. That being said, there's also a lot of you know, trade with Central Asia, with Belarus, with the Caucasus is also up substantially as well. And that's in part because for a variety of reasons, sometimes to get around sanctions, but also arguably to to mitigate the impact of, of you know, Sino-Russia trade in Europe, you do see a lot of trade directed through third countries. So some, some goods that might be shipped to, say, Belarus from China, they enter Russia and then they disappear. They never actually reach Belarus. And so even though on paper this might count as an export to Belarus, in fact, it's going to be used in the Russian economy and either directly or indirectly support the Russian war effort. So there, yeah, there's a lot that China is doing indirectly as well as directly to facilitate the invasion. 
How important, in your view, is this Chinese support strategically for Russia? Is it absolutely crucial or is it just something you know we need to keep an eye on? Yeah, so I think, I would argue it's been very impactful and not necessarily in ways that have, so there's, there's, there's different levels to the support. So economically, Chinese exports to Russia are very significant in the short term. So they're helping to limit inflation. They're helping to preserve both popular as well as elite support for the war. But there's also been a number of, of exports from China to Russia, which have had, I would argue, a very material impact on the war. So for instance, one, one piece of equipment that's been very useful for Russia is excavators. So excavators are used to dig dirt out of the ground. And exports from China to Russia of excavators started surging in August as well as September and October of 2022. And so that's significant because these excavators, you know, these again, they're used to dig trenches or used to dig dirt out of the ground. That's around the same time that Russian forces were on the back foot. You know, they had to, they were being pushed back from Kharkiv, from other areas of Ukraine by Ukrainian forces. And so it was very useful to them to dig trenches and to, and to just in place more defensive structures. So these excavator exports to China, in some cases, did end up on the battlefield. And that was, that was very important for, that was very important for Russian forces. So yeah, there, there's that's and there's also there's other areas where Chinese assistance, where Chinese trade, whether or not that's directed from Beijing, is another question. But there's all sorts of these different specific products which have had a huge impact on the battlefield. So I mentioned the Sturbeacon line was enabled by Chinese exports of excavators. Front end shovel loaders have also been very impactful for the war. But if you look at other categories such as say diesel and semi diesel trucks, that is just astonishing to see the level of Chinese exports pre and post invasion. So. If you look at <clears throat> Chinese exports of semi-diesel and diesel trucks, that's up over 4,700% from 2022 levels. That's on the year-to-day basis. But you know that obviously will have a, a major impact on the battlefield, either directly because you're able to ship goods more easily, as well as on the overall Russian economy, which is able to still ship goods from place to place and suffer from less inflation due to these, due to these truck exports. So, yeah, so China has had absolutely an important economic role. And that economic support has also translated, I would argue, on the battlefield as well, which has had a, a major impact. There's also obviously been a political support from China to Russia, which has been very important in the global south. You know, at the UN, China has often voted with Russia or at least not opposed Russia. And that's allowed, in a lot of cases, that's helped foster less opposition to Russia at, at the macro level. So there's, yes, I would argue there's been a lot of support for, for Moscow from Beijing. You said something really interesting there about not necessarily knowing whether some of this support is directed from Beijing. What do you mean by that? Yes. So to some degree, so Chinese companies are ultimately answerable to the state. At the same time, a lot of these companies are, to some degree, private entities who attempt to you know, secure profits however they can. And there are often profitable opportunities by trading with Russia or by trading with Russian intermediaries in third countries. And so it's difficult to determine to what degree these Chinese companies are acting independently from Beijing or at Beijing's direction or at some combination thereof. I, I would say this, however, if Beijing opposed trade with Russia, Chinese companies, if, if they sent a message that, they didn't, that trade with Russia was not okay, that they would be penalized for trading with Russia, Russian companies would cease to trade with Chinese companies would cease to export to Russia. So even it's clear to me, even if Beijing is not directing this trade, it's doing nothing to stop it. Could you put this in, in some historical perspective? The, the current sort of relationship between China and Russia in the past two years, obviously, you know, if you look back the last 50 years, it, it looked very, very different. So how has their relationship and their closeness sort of evolved over the years? And is what we're seeing now, do we see them now coming much closer together or, or not? If we could just put this in some historical perspective, I think it'd be fascinating. That's a good question. So in terms of in modern day, in, in contemporary China-Russia relations, they're at what they would term unprecedentedly high levels. So they are, from Moscow's perspective and Beijing's perspective, their relationship is very useful instrumentally to each other. You know, they're able to oppose the West. They're able to, in a lot of ways, achieve certain political, geopolitical objectives with each other. For Putin, Beijing's support is important domestically as well. So there's a lot of benefits that both Beijing and Moscow receive from this relationship. And you know, in terms of the historical perspective, we could get into debates about whether it is actually at its highest level today versus, say, the early 1950s or, or late 19, 1940s between the CCP and the then Soviet Union. But it is, I think it's very fair to say that the political relationship between the two autocracies is very strong today. And that was not always the case. Obviously, you know, there was the Sino-Soviet split 
during the Cold War, the two sides almost came into conflict at various points in the Cold War. Actually, U.S. forces were interacting with with the People's Liberation Army, which is the you know the Chinese military. They were actually helping the Chinese military monitor the Soviets during the Cold War. So it's been a very even though Russia China relations are in a very good place politically today, that was not the case you know certainly 40, 50 years ago. And what's it's difficult to say how the future will evolve in this relationship, but today it is very strong, and it is it is unlikely that. You, know, you hear folks talk about some sort of split between Moscow and Beijing. That is very unlikely to happen anytime in the, in the near term. You talked about how they're useful to each other. Could you talk more about how Russia is useful to China at this point? Yes, that's a good question. So I would say, obviously, there's an imbalance in the relationship. You know, you hear talk about how Russia is the junior partner to, to China. I think that's certainly true. At the same time, China does receive certain benefits from Russia. So one in one aspect is that Russia has often supplied military technology to China, either voluntarily or involuntarily in some cases, where, you know, where China has helped to, China has secured military technology, including jet technology, jet engine technology from Russia. So that's, I, I would say the, the, there's certain strategic benefits for Beijing in having Russia in its corner, because that also, that also distracts Washington to a degree that distracts Western attention. And also, too, I, I just think, well, also, too, when you talk about China and Russia, as I mentioned before, they almost came to blows in the during the Cold War, in certain periods of the Cold War. Having a strong political relationship with Russia allows China not to focus on its northern border and to look more at other issues if regards is more important for national security, such as Taiwan, such as the South China Sea. And so having a strong political relationship with Russia allows China to focus on other areas more closely, as well as to, in some cases, divide the West. So from China's perspective, their relationship with Russia and this war in Ukraine might ultimately lead to fractures in the West. We currently see very strong political support across North America, across Europe for Ukraine. However, the economic costs of this war are accumulating, and you do see more political backlash uh, in, in, you know, obviously in North America, as well as Europe, to the war. And ultimately, that political backlash could lead to fissures in NATO. It could actually lead to the dissolution of NATO. And so there, there are certain benefits, potentially benefits to China for this conflict. And so I, I do think that Russia gets far more, the government of Russia receives far more benefits from this arrangement with China than, than Beijing does. But the benefits to China are not inconsiderable. That's really fascinating. Thank you. Could you talk a little bit about what you make of the personal relationship between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin? Are they particularly close? Are they close just because their countries are close? What, what do you make of how they, how they act together? As you said, it's difficult to determine from an outsider's perspective how close they are. Obviously, their interactions are very stage managed. You know, we only see certain things that they allow us to see. And at this, I mean, they, as it, they mentioned that they're best in bosom friends, we can debate whether that's true or not. But I do think that there are a lot of parallels between the two figures. And I do think to some degree, they're, they have a lot of shared experiences. You know, they're both leaders of authoritarian countries. They both have similar outlooks on the West. And so I would regard a lot of their interpersonal relationship as genuine rather than performative. I do think that they have genuine shared interests. They do in a lot of ways relate to, to one another very well. I don't know if they would consider each other friends. I'm not sure if either of these individuals actually have friends or consider folks having friends. But that being said, I think there, yeah, there certainly is some potentially some uh, some bonhomie there. I have heard. I think this was Dennis Wilder of Georgetown, a former CIA analyst, mentioned that Xi Jinping has called Vladimir Putin his friend. And I, to, I don't. I'm not going to put words in, in Professor Wilder's mouth, but I, I believe that's the only time. Xi Jinping has referred to someone as his friend. So we can regard, we can debate about whether or not that is a genuine friendship, but there are a lot of features that bring the two, the two figures together. Going back in time before the start of the full-scale invasion, there was some speculation that Vladimir Putin had given Xi Jinping a sort of a bit of a heads up on what was coming. I don't necessarily want to ask you whether that's true or not. I don't think we do know that. But what do you think about how the invasion has gone. You know, it was supposed to be over very, very quickly. It's not. It's still going on. It looks like it's going to continue for a very long time. How has the failure of, of Russian forces in Ukraine gone over in China? What do you, do you think they, they've now re-evaluated their, their allies? Yeah, so in terms, of, in terms of did Xi Jinping get a tip-off from, from Vladimir Putin, obviously we don't know. You know, as, an, as outsiders, we don't know what they talked about and when. That being said, I think there's very strong evidence. The Russian military sent signals to Chinese forces that the invasion would not happen before the Olympics took place or not until the Olympics concluded. So 
In mid-January, Russia and Belarus announced that they would have these combined military exercises. This is January of 2022. So they announced that they would have these combined military exercises called Allied Resolve in February of 2022. And they said that the exercise would take place from February 10th through February 20th. That date is very significant because that's when the Beijing Olympics were supposed to conclude. And so from, I think this, I don't think this is a stretch to assume this either, that, that seemed to be a signal from the Russian military that the invasion would not proceed until after the Olympics were concluded. You know, we don't know if what Xi Jinping discussed with Vladimir Putin when they met in Beijing. But that being said, I, I think that there's, it, you'd have to, you'd have to take a great leap of faith as a Chinese analyst not to see the, the Russian military build up on these borders prior to the invasion. And then, yes, after the invasion. So we, I, I think it's very, there's very strong evidence that China was aware or should have been aware, at least, that the, the invasion was going to take place. That being said, after the invasion, yes, there's been Chinese, I think most military analysts have been very surprised at just how, one, how poorly the, the Russian military performed. Second of all, how, frankly, how strongly the Ukrainians reacted uh, to the invasion. I think folks across the board have been very impressed by just the resilience of the Ukrainian people as well as the Ukrainian military forces. And so there's, I think there has been a reassessment in China about the usefulness of Russia to some degree, because if the Russian military, whether it's in terms of, we'll call it hardware, where the, mil- you know, the, the military forces are just not well-trained, or in terms of software, where the equipment is actually failing, in either event, it's just not, the Russian military is not as impressive as it was to analysts in, in January of 2022. So yes, there, I think there's more, there's certain, this war is causing pause for Chinese analysts to some degree, because they see that invasions are not so easy as they first appear on paper, that obviously has implications for Taiwan, potentially. And they're also, it's also just hard to, it's hard to know how good your technology is before you actually begin the fight. There's a lot, you know, war is uncertain. You'll hear Michael Coffin talks about how war is contingent. There's a lot of things that can go wrong with an invasion. So I, I think Russia, I think, you know, obviously, China, you know, Western analysts are looking at this invasion very closely. Chinese analysts are as well. And from the Chinese side, there's a lot of, this, this really, I think, drives home the point there's a lot of uncertainties you involve in any sort of conflict. In your view, is the strategic relationship between China and Russia high up enough on Western analysts and policymakers' minds? It is certainly on policymakers' minds. I think it's difficult. So you know, we we obviously do. We can you know we can we can see to some degree what the relationship is like. Policymakers do follow it very closely. I think there's also, generally speaking, an awareness that the West has a very limited ability to influence this relationship in one way or the other. The the drivers of the relationship are mostly due to Chinese and Russian domestic politics and the internal character of these regimes in both countries. I think there's a recognition that for most policymakers in the West that there's really not much we there's there very there are going to be limited steps we can take to degrade the relationship. I think destroying the relationship, leading to some having some split between the two sides is is a near impossibility. But there are I would argue that there are things we can do to degrade cooperation between China and between Russia. They, these, they're not a monolith. They do have a lot of common interests. Both Beijing and Moscow are deeply opposed to the rules-based world order. They are very much opposed to a U.S. leadership in the world. They obviously are no friends of constitutional democracy. That being said, they do not share identical interests. And so there, I think there are ways for the West to not destroy cooperation, but I think there are ways for the West to degrade uh, the relationship between the two autocracies. You said just then that there are some places where they do not share the same interests. Could you just go into that a, a bit more? Why, why not? Yes. Yeah, so the war has been very costly for everyone. Uh, obviously, most of all has been Ukraine in terms of in terms of the economy. The war is on obviously on more than just an economic level as well. The war has been very costly for Ukraine, also for Russia as well. And obviously, Europe has been very impacted by high energy prices. You know, in the U.S., we've also experienced inflation as a result of this. But this has also been very destructive for China. As well, China is the world's largest energy and commodity importer. And so as this war happened, well, the war was launched by the Kremlin. And that has obviously impacted oil prices, it's impacted world natural gas prices, it's impacted food prices around the world. And again, China is the largest importer of all of those items. And so even though China has been receiving some sort, they've been receiving benefits to some degree, you know, in terms of having lower import bill for oil imports from Russia they're still paying a huge price in terms of the global, the, the secular rise in prices, the macro rise in prices have been very detrimental to the Chinese economy. And more broadly, 
China has also paid a heavy price in terms of technology because West, Western countries are the world leaders in technological development, uh, including in semiconductors. And I think without this war, without China's semi-overt support for Russia, I think Western countries such as the Netherlands, such as Japan, would be much less willing to go along with Western with U.S. restrictions on, on exports to China uh, were it not for Chinese support for Russia. So, yeah, there, I think there's there's been very significant economic costs uh, you know, for, for the Chinese side. And that's one area where they do not share, where they do not share similar interests more in, in the, that's in the short term. Uh, you hear some folks talk about Central Asia as potentially a friction point between China and Russia. I would argue that that's actually not likely to be the case going forward. I think that there's more commonality there. They share more common interests in Central Asia. I've argued before that Central Asia is more bridging China and Russia than dividing them. So I would, I would, Put that to the side, but I think long term, the energy transition is a huge is a huge potential fissure between the two sides. So, you know, Russia is a huge natural gas as well as, more importantly, oil exporter. China is a huge is, is already a huge exporter of clean energy, and so that those different interests are likely to collide. Maybe not in the next three years, maybe not in the next five years, but over the longer term, I think that's a hu- that'll be hugely impactful for the relationship. We started this conversation talking about Kyrgyzstan, and you just mentioned there, actually, relations in Central Asia. Just to finish, can we talk about that a little bit more? I mean, we've talked on the podcast before about the influence of Russia maybe declining slightly in some of the post-Soviet countries and the influence of Beijing expanding, especially with the Belt and Road Initiative. What do you see as the current state of play? I mean, I'm very interested in your idea that you just expressed there of this bridging, because that seems like an idea we haven't really heard before. I, I do think that Central Asian countries are in a very difficult spot. It's a very difficult neighborhood that they live in. That being said, there's especially after the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, there is less Western interest in the region. There's even less Western influence than there was before. And so that, in some ways, has left a vacuum which China and Russia have filled. And I would, I would argue that as, a, as someone who thinks that we should have withdrawn from Afghanistan, it's an undeniable fact that Western influence is not as strong as it was before the invasion. You hear this old saw when, when folks talk about Central Asia in the context of China-Russia relations that China brings the money. Russia brings the guns. That has been true to some extent in the past. It is also true to some extent now. Russian is spoken, obviously spoken throughout throughout Central Asia, and the militaries in Central Asia also speak Russian. It, they find it easier to work with in Russian and with Russian forces, but that's changing to some degree. China has an increasingly large footprint on the ground in Tajikistan, being, being a notable example. So you do see more of a Chinese security presence in Central Asia. And obviously, China's economic influence has grown even larger because of the war. In Central Asia, the war has really impacted Russia's economy, maybe not as much as we thought it would in, say, February of 2022. But you know, Russia's economy is not doing very well. The Chinese economy is not doing well itself. But it is it, it, Chinese exports to Central Asia, Chinese, the Chinese economic footprint in Central Asia is growing very rapidly. And so you will likely see this trend, which is just a, a trend for the past decade, if not longer, about China's economic influence growing, Russia's receding relatively, you will likely see that continue to happen going forward. But at the same time, Central Asia is not a primary theater for either country. It's a secondary priority for Russia, and I would argue it's a tertiary priority for China. So even though they might have slightly different regional interests, for instance, China wants natural gas from Turkmenistan. They want this uh, Central Asia to China pipeline, Line D. To go to uh, to go to China, you know that would impact Russian natural gas exports to some degree. There's some competition in terms of energy exports between Central Asia and Russia. But that being said, these are not these are not the highest priority. This 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 theater is not the highest priority for either capital. And so I, I think they're likely to manage their disagreements in the region because again, the relationship between Beijing and Moscow is much more important than the interests either country has in Central Asia. So. That's my long-winded way of saying it. I think that they're likely to, you know, we're likely to see this sort of cooperation, quasi-cooperation between the two sides. There, there will be some sort of disagreements under the rug, but I, I think they'll, they're very likely to manage it because of the overall importance of their bilateral relationship. Joe, is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think is important to mention or anything you kind of wish I, I would have asked? I would just say as I, something I hear, I hear it's in wish casting in some ways is that folks wish there was some magic bullet to degrade cooperation between Beijing and Moscow. I would argue that's not going to be the case. These two capitals, they share a lot of common interests. Obviously, the regimes in both countries share 
certain outlooks and that's not going to change anytime soon. So it'll, it, there is a lot of commonality of interest between the two sides. Breaking these two sides is, uh, you know, breaking the relationship between these two autocracies is not going to be easy. It's not going to happen anytime in the near term. And I would argue it's not worth trying in a, and certainly in any way that would compromise the U.S.'s ability to work with allies because allies at the end of the day is the most important. It's arguably the U.S.'s greatest, I would argue the greatest uh, advantage we have in the international system. It's also obviously important to work with fellow constitutional democracies. And so I, I would just push back against anyone who argues we should abandon Ukraine for Russia. I think that would be a terrible trade to make. Thanks so much for your time. That was really fascinating. Yeah, thanks so much. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it's released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk we do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Giles Gear and Elliot Lampitt. Executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to another round of Boardroom or Miro Board. Today we talk retrospectives with Agile coach Maria. Let's go. First question. You've spent two hours in a team retro, but the only input you've heard is Dave's. Boardroom or Miro Board? Boardroom. In Miro, Dave can't hog the space because everyone can add thoughts anonymously, online, at the same time. Correct. Next. You need the team to act on feedback fast, so you turn all those retro notes into Jira tasks instantly. Miro all the way. And I can assign those tasks to teammates. You're nailing this. Now, you see hundreds of sticky notes from the retro. A real mess. But you organize them into five themes in just seconds. Miro, I basically get back an entire hour when I use its AI tools for clustering. And she's done it. Join over 60 million people running actually enjoyable and actionable retros in Miro. Get your first three boards free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com.